It's the All-Star break, and time to look back at the fantasy baseball season so far, and maybe peek ahead to the rest of the season. I'll have Todd Zola from Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire, and Ray Murphy from BaseballHQ.com in a special All-Star Break Roundtable Edition, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Monday, July the 10th. It's show number 25 of the 2023 fantasy baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have a special All-Star Break Roundtable edition. In part one, Todd, Ray, and I will talk about the big stories from the first half in baseball and fantasy baseball. And in part two, we'll have our mid-season bouquets and brickbats, the best and worst fantasy performances of the year to date, and some boons and banes for the rest of the season. It's a special All-Star Break Roundtable Edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The All-Star Break is upon us, so we are going to talk some first-half baseball. And in the first inning of this special All-Star Break Roundtable Edition, it's part one of our roundtable with Todd Zola from Masters Ball ESPN and Rotowire, and Ray Murphy from BaseballHQ.com. Todd, welcome back to the show. You know what? It's been a little bit, PD, and I think you guys have had some really great guests on in the first half of the season, so I'm glad it's taken so long to be back with you. It has been a, a pretty good uh, season so far. Uh, how's life up in Cape Cod? You're looking at some baseball this week without thinking about it from a fantasy point of view. Yeah, I took a little trip up to the Cape. Uh, I'll be back Wednesday to get reacquainted with my spreadsheets, but uh, it's been you know, 85, 90 degrees, as Ray can attest. And of course, it was 70 degrees last night. I didn't need to turn the air conditioning on. But I caught a game in Falmouth. I will catch another one today. Weather permitting. It's going to be raining today, so... I may have to watch the home run derby from the hotel and not a ball game, but tomorrow will be nice. I just like to get away. It's uh, it's nice to get away. I don't know, Ray, if you come up and watch any of the Cape, Cape games on occasion, but it's just baseball at its pure. It's just people playing catch uh, with their parent, their family, and it's just it's it's free. You donate 50-50, all these sort of it's, – it's, it's a blast. Ray Murphy, welcome back to the show. Uh, how are you doing baseball-wise with the All-Star Game weekend? Yeah, I'm looking forward to a couple of down days. I'm not doing anything as fun as Todd is. Uh, I will be on the Cape in a couple of weeks. Usually I get there after uh, – I get down there every August, usually after the Cape season has ended baseball-wise. But I'm going a little bit earlier this year, so I am definitely hoping to uh, catch a game or two, even if it's the playoffs. Which way is the Cape from Boston? Uh, it is east. Is pro- Well, southeast, I guess. Southeast. Uh, East from where Todd and I live, but southeast of Boston. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get started. It's been an interesting first half, actually first 60% or so. We always call it the first half, though. And uh, Ray, let's start with you because I'm curious what you think has been the big story so far of the fantasy baseball season. I mean, it has to be the ripple effects of the various rule changes, right? And it's hard to pin down one of them. I'm sure we'll spend a bunch of time talking about these, but... You know, the headliner is, of course, the spike in stolen bases. They're up, what, somewhere between 40 and 50% from last year. But, you know, there are other ripple effects. Runs are up 
Uh, starting pitching seems harder than ever to find. Uh, batting average hasn't moved as much as we maybe thought it would with the shift, which is surprising. But the overall effect on offense is there despite the batting average. So uh, it's not an entirely new game we're playing, but it's a uh, it's a altered version of uh, of our game, and you know it looks a little bit more like uh, you know something we used to play six or eight or 10 years ago, maybe, uh, you know, this game has altered a bunch of times over the course of the years. Uh, this is not in, not a version we haven't seen before, but it's different than what we've been seeing recently. So, uh, I've been dusting off some, uh, you know, prior held notions about how we deal with this kind of environment of an environment. I'm sure Todd's got a, you know, a, um, you know, a couple of decades of knowledge there he's been tapping, tapping into too, but, um, I'll throw it over to you guys and let you expound as well. Todd, what do you think is the big story so far in fantasy? Uh, just a real quick to follow up on Ray said, you only have to go back to 2018. Our numbers, right, and they may go up just because there's another two and a half months, the weather gets warmer. But this run environment, batting average, slugging, everything, it's almost 2018 exact with more steals. So you don't have to go back that far. People are making it seem like we've never seen we've never seen a diving catch before. Yeah, we have. <laughs> anyway, all right. My, I think it, and where you kind of alluded to this a little bit. I think my big story of the fantasy season, and you know, again, who knows what the reason is, but I'm finding p- evaluating pitching both on a short and long term basis more difficult this year than I ever can recall. And one starter just due to the number of innings that he throws, can really mess up your, your entire fantasy season. Let's, let's call him Brady Singer, just as an example. But no, the point, and I, I, real, I, real, I'm wondering what you guys think about this. I have a theory that it's really not that much different, but because we think we know so much more with StatCast and Brooks and Fangraphs and everything else, I think we think we should be able to handle pitching better than we are because I think we think we know more than we do. So it may have always been this wacky, but we think we know it better and it just seems that it's more wacky. I don't know. I think that I think that there's some truth to what you say, Todd, in that uh, we get all this information about pitchers and we sometimes mistake a lot of information for a lot of knowledge. And uh, the more information mm-hmm. you get sometimes becomes more difficult to sort out how does it all fit together? And we, uh, people are building all these models and for the most part, a lot of them are pretty correct or pretty accurate, but every so often they're not. And then we have all of the other things going on that are penalizing pitchers in one way or the other. And I thought, Todd, you said that a Brady Singer type guy uh, can sink your season with a couple of bad outings, but on the flip side, some of the pitchers who are throwing up one good outing after another can yeah, really if, sure. can really swing your staff in a in a positive yeah. way that's maybe more positive than in previous years. No, absolutely. Uh, one of I, I think you guys doesn't matter valuation SGP. Whatever, we don't want to get in that deep. But pitching is more compressed, top to bottom. The values, the earned auction, whatever you want to call them. They're more compressed top to bottom, and that's as you're suggesting, Petey. If if the if the numbers are more compressed in a fantasy basis, one performer can hurt or help you more than normal. I think the other issue that's related to all of this is, I, I think what you said about thinking we're better at identifying uh, pitching is probably true. 
Todd, I think the other issue that relates to this for me is between injuries, which, you know, I, I haven't run the numbers. I won't do it till year end. Um, but, you know, with all the talk about more pitcher injuries and with other pitchers being more workload monitored, not, you know, we, we're seeing fewer like true openers than we have in previous years, but starting pitcher innings are still down. I, I think the, you know, when you get saddled with a Brady Singer or someone else who you want to get away from, it's much harder to find a replacement that you're okay with, right? I think the the waiver pool in leagues of kind of all sizes for pitching is just brutal. And that might lead you to be more patient with Brady Singer than you were before because you believe more in, you know, because you believe in what you thought in the beginning of the season. Oh, and by the way, you can't find something you'd rather do with that roster spot anyway. Right. It's more about favorable one start pitching streaming than focusing on the two starts now. I mean, we all do two starts because it's what we do. However, I think I, I think the better podcast would be these are your good one start pickups this week. Yeah, I do that. Yeah, ahead I of two start pitchers, uh, I, I've long since since I started yeah. playing in formats that really reward uh, streaming pitchers. I I think the way to go is always find the best matchup. And yeah. if it's a, if it's somebody pitching in Oakland against Oakland, that's that's pretty good. And you don't want to necessarily grab a guy right. who's pitching against, you know, Houston and Texas on a road swing. Well, my story for fantasy, uh, this is too close to call for me. It has to do with sensational seasons and how they're changing our expectations of players. Shohei Otani has been a first-round hitter value at $27 and a first-round pitcher value at around $23. This is according to the custom draft guide at BaseballHQ.com. And then we have the sensational debut of Ellie De La Cruz, who has only played 30 games, 135 plate appearances, and he's already the 28th most valuable hitter in fantasy, and by quite a margin, could be the most profitable as well. And this has ramifications that we're going to talk about a little later on. But one of the ones I'm really curious to see in the future is, are we going to start seeing more players who hit and pitch? It started dribbling around, what was the kid's name in Tampa? Uh, Brendan something or Brandon something who came up and, and they said he could pitch and hit. And unfortunately he didn't seem to be that good at either of them, at least not maybe yeah. ready. McKay. Yeah. But there's no reason that a guy can't be a hitter and a pitcher, except for the way they're treated, especially as they get up to their late teenage years. Could we be seeing Otani as the harbinger of something that's going to really expand in the next 10 or 15 years, especially as more kids think I'd like to be like that guy and work on their hitting while they're working on their pitching. Ah, Ray, we go, we go back to Frankie Rodriguez. You know, the, there have been examples of two-way Brooks Kieschnick. Uh, There have been examples of potential two-way players. And it's funny when you try to do both, you end up doing neither in a lot of these cases. Yeah. I think Otani, he's like the unicorn of unicorns. I think you're right, Patrick, in that I think it has opened up the door. People, they won't get you know categorically laughed at when they say, I want to do both. But we I don't think people understand. Maybe they do. I don't know what, what we're looking at. This is the first year kind of feeding what you're saying, PD. You can actually make an argument if you can start Otani a hitter or a pitcher. You may have been better off starting him as a pitcher this year which is just nuts. 
considering how good of a hitter he is. It is. That's true, yeah. I mean, other years it was like, well, he's a good hitter, but he's still good at hitting. With the way pitching is this year, I think you probably were better off having him as a pitcher. So anyway, but um, uh, I don't know. I think that he's such a unicorn. Maybe maybe we will see more just because at a younger age it'll be more encouraged, so we may see uh, some better players try it. But I think we just have to sit back and just marvel at what we're seeing. It's just insane. I agree, but I don't think that the next – Shohei Otani has to be anywhere near as good as oh, Shohei no, Otani. No. Oh, right? All we need is a kid who can hit a little bit and pitch reasonably well, just enough to make the roster in both uh, in both capacities, because that's going to be a real advantage for the team that has him, because it's one less roster spot you have to worry about. Especially yeah, the, the Giants were playing around this with uh, was it Ronald Guzman this spring, right? Um, unfortunately, I think one of the things we know about Ronald Guzman is he's not a major league caliber hitter, let alone pitcher. So, you know, bad example, but you know, I, I, I bring it up only to underscore your point, PD, that teams looking for an edge are going to try to find a guy who can, you know, even if it's just eating up, you know, being a better than a better pitcher than your average utility infielder and be able to eat a couple innings in a blowout loss and also be a capable bench bat is a, is a useful function within the confines of a 26 man roster. Yeah, I think we may see you kind of alluded to Ray uh, Ray's. We may see utility man who can pitch in relief. I think I, I think we could see because you're handicapped if if, you, if the guy doesn't start and he's a regular on your hitting side. You, you all right? I can bring him in as a reliever, but now you're the use a DH and you know all sorts of weird things. So we need to start and use the Otani rule or be just kind of a utility guy, hitter and pitcher. I think we'll see some of those. I think we could already have seen it if it hadn't worked out differently for Michael Lorenzen, who in Cincinnati was a pinch hitter while being a a pitcher. And when he, when he went to the American league, there were some stories that suggested he might pitch out of the bullpen and pinch hit, or maybe even take a a regular turn in the lineup as a DH, because at the time they didn't have a lot of other alternatives. So I think there's various pathways to see more of these two-way players. And I hope so, because it's going to be interesting for the game and it's certainly going to create valuation questions as far as uh, uh, fantasy baseball is concerned. Uh, let's go to real baseball. Uh, Todd, what do you think is the big story so far this year in the actual game? All right. Um, what I think is the big story, I don't think the big story's occurred yet. Um, what I think is, I think there's a lot of early victory laps by MLB, by some spokespeople, by some uh, Breaking Bad actors that it's done. It's we we fixed it. It is great. It's as great as it's ever going to be. What a game! I think that we're a little we're a little premature in that we don't know what's Ray. You talked about pitching injuries. You didn't really say why, but one of the reasons is going to possibly be the time the pitch clock. Sure. Are we going to continue to see these injuries? Uh, what if what if between the pitch clock and the weather continue to get warm and pitch counts mounting? What if offense gets you know even more out of when well, I say even more gets it goes up a bit more, and the games aren't as crisp and clean as everybody. So I think the big story is the uh, it's a little premature MLB and some announcers and some writers to say we fixed it. I hopefully you know little little parochial bias here. I know Theo Epstein is involved. I'd like to think it's a work in progress in Theo's mind. 
Yeah, let me give you the 20 degree different spin on that, Todd, um, on the same topic since I was going to talk about it anyway. I think you're totally right that it's not a finished product yet, but I'm reminded that those rule changes, the pitch clock specifically, was not done for the benefit of the three of us, or I will venture to say anybody listening to Baseball HQ Radio, right? This was done for the masses, for the casual fan, for, um, you you know, for the – you know, to to improve the mass marketability. In that sense, I think MLB has gotten exactly what they wanted. And the fact that we're pointing out the, you know, maybe yet undetermined ripple effects or the things that need more study, again, I don't think the people they did this for are paying attention to those things. Um, They sure still need to be tuned, but I think we know enough to know they're not going back. To your point, Todd, I think that raises a lot of questions about, what are the incremental improvements we could do to polish this off? How do we make sure we're not injuring pitchers? Can we turn the clock off in the ninth inning? Whatever the heck the the, the tweaks are going to be down the road. My personal beef, Todd, and then you probably relate to this one, is if now that we've done this and we know that games are going to be shorter, can we do something about start times? We don't need the 640 games anymore during the week because, you know, those games are over by nine o'clock Eastern. Can we go, you know, I would like to see games go back. You know, I'm old enough to remember when East coast games started at eight o'clock Eastern and mm-hmm. we're done it and we're done at 1045. That's, you know, I, I freely admit that's a generation to go at this point, but can we go back to 715 or 730 or, you know, let's get crazy here. Can we do what, some of what the NBA and NHL does and have staggered starts throughout the evening. It drives me freaking batty as an East coast person. When it gets to be 10 30 at night, my kids are in bed and I want to lay around and watch a game for a little <laughs> while. There are like two games still going on at 10 30 at night. You're killing me MLB. You know, we, we don't need to start so early if we're going to end so early. Can we, you know, if we know the games are two and a half hours now, can we adjust the evening schedule accordingly, please? It seems Good. like they should really be able to have, three Western time zone games at least every yeah, night. Yeah, sometimes we only have two. And it's... Sometimes you know, we don't have any. One of them involves the A's and I don't want to watch it, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, luckily for us, Ray, one of them is usually the Padres and we get to hear our cello. Yes, which is fabulous. Absolutely. Yeah, but, uh, that it, is good. Yeah. I, from a selfish point of view, I like watching Miami at 640 because I get to watch a half an hour of Alcantara you know, or what's wrong with him, or I get to watch Cabrera. I mean, I get to watch a game or two kind of without worrying about flipping. I know that's just completely selfish and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. DFS-wise, I sure like the bigger slate and all that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, I, think, I just I tend not to get free that early. So yeah. usually I'm like sitting down to watch games at 8 o'clock. And, yeah, isn't that? You know, some, of them are, some of them are in the sixth inning. And I'm like, what the heck's going on here? Isn't that so funny? And now, for someone who likes to, or not likes to, uh, needs to update spreadsheets, etc. I like the fact that things are over by midnight, so yes. I can dump I can dump my stats into my spreadsheets, the day, you know, and, and and save time for the following and get my numbers out there earlier the next day, right? Your your pitching matchups, etc. Ray, you can get your stuff. Your stuff. I know most of that's automated, but you know anything you want to do on your own. Uh, games are over earlier. Stats that are into the books earlier uh, get a little bit. But yeah, I mean, yeah, I used to be at you know, one thirty, one forty five. I got, I got Mookie. I got Mookie. I can't go to bed yet. Uh, he's on my DFS team. Now it's it's over by one. And you know what? There are not a lot of good movies on cable to, to, to watch instead anymore. Let's move on. Uh, my big story is so far in baseball, I think what the season has proved is you can't buy a winner. 
If the season ended now, the team with the biggest payroll in the league, in the game, the Mets would be outside the playoffs looking in, and it doesn't look very promising that they're going to get back into the race. And there's been a lot of speculation by experts that they may even be sellers at the trade deadline, which really sounds odd considering what they expected to be. And the same is largely true of the Padres, the third largest payroll team. Three of the top six payrolls in baseball would miss the playoffs entirely, and only the Rangers are simultaneously leading their division and having the biggest payroll in it. Conversely, you got the Orioles, 68 million, the Rays, 77, and the Reds, 93, are in position to make the playoffs. That's three of the six lowest payrolls in baseball, and there's four teams below the major league average that are playoff bound or would be if the playoffs started tomorrow. So I think that this is a, a victory for being smart rather than being rich. And I, I, that part of things I like because I think there's a there's a bit of a parallel in fantasy baseball that it's how you spend your money, not how much you spend, that makes you I successful. didn't realize that the, today's Baseball HQ Radio was going to be hosted by Rob Manfred. <laughs> well, I, I hate to come off that way. I just like that the, that the money is not necessarily a guarantor of success. Oh, sure. Because it has been over the past few years. And I have to say, I don't like the salary restrictions that Major League Baseball has. I don't think the union should ever have agreed with them. So I'm certainly not uh, a Rob Manfred acolyte on this. I just like it. Ray, uh, what's your big real baseball story? Or did you cover it when you were talking about Todd's big baseball story? Yeah, I kind of covered mine. Let me, let me riff on your point, Todd, PD. Um, you know, entirely re- reasonable position. I think my counterpoint would be that I don't think all of those pay- payroll situations are created equally. I don't equate what Steve Cohen did with the Mets to what the Padres did, for instance. They're both getting the same results from spending money, but, you know, I've, you know, Cohen's just, you know, throwing around money because he's got it all over the place. I think the Padres are you know, more of a long-term investing, trying to build their market and, you know, put a put a really exciting team on the field um, that the community was responding to. And I don't really want to throw cold water on that the way I want, the way I want to throw cold water on what Steve Cohen did. That's fair enough. Uh, let's move on. Uh, what did we learn in the first half that we can profitably apply to our fantasy teams in the second half? And I'll go first here, and I'm going to go back to what we talked about earlier about stolen bases, and I think that uh, that subject may come up several times while we're talking here, and that is I think we all have to recalibrate our expectations of stolen bases, especially when we're starting to get into that phase of the season when we start looking at the categories and saying, Am I out of this or am I am I at the bottom of a clump that I can't gain on or vice versa? Is there an opportunity here in stolen bases? Because I, th- I think that there is going to be uh, a difference between what we've come to expect and what we should expect in the stolen bases category. And I think that those who profitably figure it out are going to really benefit. Uh, Ray, what do you think? I'm on the same page. My 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 spin on it was a little little bit different, uh, but looking at my rosters and some of the um, teams, I, some of my teams that I've been analyzing their chances for the second half, I, I seem to be noticing everywhere that my chances hinge on moving a team with a 
420 ERA and a 128 to 130 whip down to like 375, 380 ERA and a 125 whip. And I think the core, what, what I'm extrapolating from that is kind of what we were talking about uh, uh, 10 minutes ago about starting pitchers. I think the value of finding quality starting pitchers the rest of the way is enormous. And I, you know, there are old axioms about not wanting to trade productive hitting for productive pitching. And I think you can throw those things out the window. And if you're in trading situations, I think I'm where where trading is allowed. I'm going to be out shopping for starting pitching because it seems like that is where I can make, where I could turn around the fortunes of a bunch of teams this in the second half. And as we alluded to a couple minutes ago, quality starting pitching is really hard to find. Todd? So I'm going to embellish what you said, PG, just a little bit, and since it's still based on my thing, and come up with another on the fly. I think one of the things, we, you know, specifically, what did we learn in the first half we can apply the second half? Teams that run, I, we can find the matchups. Not, not only are stolen bases up, when you've got a team that runs versus a team that doesn't defend the run very well, they're running proportionately more. We saw it with the Reds and Nationals over the weekend. So it's easier to target, to manage, to look, you know, you get stolen, it's daily leagues especially. But I think we can use the second, look what teams are running the most, look what teams are having trouble defending the run. And if you're looking for steals, put the secondary, you know, put the guys that can take advantage in your lineups for that week. I think we can more so you can always do that but the highs and lows are just in the benefits this year are even more to micromanaging stolen bases in that regard the thing that i kind of came up with real quick to sort of be a little bit different and this kind of talks to what you were talking about pd as far as where teams are and the money and you know i'll, I'll mention jason collette's been talking about this too there are a lot of teams like i can't believe they're doing that well and there are a lot of teams whose batting average and running and scoring position is, is inordinately high or low. It should be five or six to eight points above their team batting average, but in some cases it's 30 above and below. And this is going to normalize. And I want players on the teams whose batting average and running and scoring position is low. They didn't, it's, there's no clutch. They didn't forget how to hit. It's going to figure itself out. Toronto is a team like that. San Diego. Because we, you know, all right, I'm going to get homers. I'm going to get steals. We never talk about getting runs in RBI. Runs in RBI will dovetail on these teams whose batting average is running in scoring position just correct itself over the final two and a half months. So uh, that, that's something I, from the first half, I'm looking at whose teams are lucky and unlucky in that regard. And I'm targeting players on the unlucky batting average with running in scoring position. And I'm thankful that I have the lucky guys, but I'm cognizant that their pace may slow down. I should point out that in Toronto, the lack of scoring in with runners in scoring position, uh, the lack of hitting with runners in scoring position is largely driven by Kevin Gosman being on the mound when the entire team seems to take the day <laughs> off so that I don't get a fantasy win out of it on several of my, <laughs> several of my rosters. Let's go quickly. Uh, just kind of talked about this already, but I'm curious if you want to get into a bit of detail about the 2023 rule changes and their effects on fantasy baseball. Uh, the first one, I think we've probably covered pretty thoroughly bigger bases, fewer pickoff throws and their impact on stolen bases. Uh, Ray, start us off. 
Yeah, I mean, you know, we talked about, you know, stolen bases up over 40-50% on the year. I think Todd's point about there being pockets of teams and matchups where they're, they're happening more and they're exploitable is interesting. Um, you know, th- there are all kinds of ripple effects to that. Like, I was looking at, you know, Todd mentioned that Washington-Cincinnati series this weekend, and I don't know, it kind of looked to me like, C.J. Abrams in particular looked at what Ellie Dago Cruz was doing and said, whoa, that looks like fun. I need to start doing that. I mean, Abrams, after kind of sleeping his way through the first half, just stole five bases this weekend, you know, after after kind of after watching Ellie and being like, hey, you know, I'm pretty fast, too. I should probably be thinking about doing this more. And it's not like I'm killing my team. Yeah, Dave Martinez was mouthing off about Ellie showing him up, and, and it was almost like he turned C.J. loose and said, fine, go be Ellie. You know, and I'm not saying CJ is LA De La Cruz, but you know, with, with the legs, he basically is. So, um, you know, that's kind of interesting. I'm curious to see whether that um, carries over to the second half. But I think that does kind of dovetail back to Todd's larger point early on is that, you know, despite the mission accomplished banner, a lot of these rule changes, how to exploit them, how do you exploit them in games that matter down the stretch versus teams that are playing out the string. I think a lot of these things are still to be determined and are still, you know, the banner should be work in progress, not mission accomplished. Right. So there's, you know, there's more to be seen here. Todd, what do you think? Um, I mean, about the bases, I think we've, we've hammered that home a lot. Um, you know, I, not that I like enjoyed watching pickoff throws, but I think we can, I can say this about all the changes is that they were, they were forced and and I will also say baseball brought it upon themselves. The players brought it upon themselves for their need to be enforced. But for a game that used to be untimed and the, the romance and all that sort of stuff, and to have the you know the rhythm being dictated by clocks now, I mean I could you know Lar Michaels is just cringing. I know that, um, but it's just it's a better it's yeah it's a better game, but it's just the fact it had to be forced that way kind of bugs me. And again, the players brought it upon themselves by abusing the, the clock and the no clock, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, one thing I know, all right, we're going to go through them individually. So I'll, I'll save my one thing until we get to the other point. For me, the stolen bases, of course, we know they're up, but I was curious before the season about how the extra stolen bases were going to be distributed, whether it was going to be the 50 guys going to 100 and the 10 guys going to 12, but it doesn't seem to have worked out that way. It looks like the stolen bases are being pretty broadly distributed with, you know, the 10 guys going up to 18 and the 50 guys going up to 70 or whatever the case might be. And I haven't looked into it with a lot of detail, but that's just what my impression is. And in the long-term future, if this is how things continue to go, I think it's going to force us to rethink how we approach the stolen base category when we're doing draft planning and then when we're uh, managing our teams during the season. The stolen base category has changed. It's going to change again, I'm sure, while teams, especially when teams like, why wasn't C.J. Abrams running from day one? They know he can run and they know they don't have much of an offense get them going. You know, they had nothing better to do. I mean, he was creating extra run opportunities. And I think more and more as the 
analytics filter their way into team management on the field, I think that's going to grow. And if so, that means even more stolen bases that we have to account for in our fantasy planning as well. Uh, let's talk about the shift or the absence of the shift, Todd. What do you think has happened as far as fantasy when we get rid of the shift? Well, I don't have to think. I can uh, I can look up some batting average and balls in play. And where you know, I think that we thought it was supposed to, you know, intuitively help left-handed batters because they get shipped, they got shifted more. I think we something else to keep in mind is I think shifts only occurred in like 33 to 40% of plays. It's not as if every play had a shift over the past couple of years. There was more shifting than in previous years. I think that it's kind of revisionist history. You know, every play has a shift. No, no not even half the plays, uh, half the at-bats were shifted. But, yeah, the batting average on balls in play for left-handed ground balls is up. It's 237. It was 221 last year. But it was 237, 234, 241. It's back to where it was from 2014 to 2018. So, again, we're kind of – what you talk about, Ray, returning to a game six, eight years ago is kind of what we've done. Batting average of balls of play, left-handed outfield line drives is up to 709. It was 691 last year. Um, this is the, one of the areas where it's it's very important because an, outside, an, out, an outfield line drive is more than a single a lot of times. So this is uh, contributing to the run in that you're not moving the outfielders around as much and left-handers are getting more, uh, you know, you don't have to hit it over their head. You can hit it between them sort of thing. The rest of them looked a little bit like variants to me. Uh, so it's it's doing what it's doing. How much, Ray, was the, the you kind of alluded to, is it doing as much as we thought? I don't think we knew exactly how much. I think people tried to figure out how much it was going to help. But it was a lot of speculation and a lot of back-of-the-envelope math and taking into consideration may not have been shifting, but you're repositioning players, and you can still do that within the limits. So I don't know if we should have expected it to be higher or lower because I don't think we knew where, where it should land. And you know what? It may land a different place next year because there's so much variance. Yeah, and, you know, to take the non-statistical look at this, you know, I think all three of us watch a lot of baseball. My take on it is it passes the eye test for me. Like you said, Todd, you get a lot of balls, like, that are getting between the – first and second base hole now, right? You know, either line drives or hard hit ground balls. Balls that before, like if you're watching a game, balls that off the bat before the camera changes, you're like, oh, that should be a hit. And even all the years when they were shifting aggressively, like I was still getting fooled by that. I would see that ball <laughs> rip like, you know, eight feet to the right of the first baseman and be like, oh, that great. Oh, oh well, that second baseman's out, out on the grass. Look, he's standing there right there. That's an easy play. Like I was still gullible for that. Now that's a hit again. And that feels right to me. On the flip side of the coin, one of the things we talked about um, was that, you know, some degrees of – we talked about preseason was that some degrees of shift are still allowed. You can still have one of the middle infielders essentially behind second base on the right side of the bag. And a lot of times what I see is that ball back up the middle, there's somebody there to get it now, whether it's the second base when you're shortstop who is heavily shaded that way. But my overall take is it's fine. It is playable. I'm not saying I'm buying the – you know, the Brian Can Cranston ad campaign in its entirety, but <laughs> I do think those are positive changes and yeah. they do instinctively look right to me. 
I haven't researched this, but for, again, from what I've seen and what little I've read about the whole issue, I don't think it has been as impactful as a lot of people expected. I was talking to somebody a few weeks ago, I think it might have been Doug Dennis, who put out a, a picture that, from the stands that he took while he was in a, a low-level minor league game, and they had lines drawn on the field that extended the uh, first to second baseline out into left field and the second to third. And you weren't allowed anywhere in that, in the resulting triangle behind first base. You had to be completely to the one side or the other of second base. You couldn't, you couldn't be right behind it. And I asked if that was uh, something that, that they had in, invented just to test in the minor leagues. And apparently that's what it was. And I don't know what the result has been, but I don't know. I, I always thought that the best way they could have handled the shift was to tell the hitters to hit it where they ain't. Uh, Joey Gallo did this all the time. God, he was bunting for hits to third because there was nobody within 60 yards of the, of the third base bag and, or he was poking the ball down the field, down the, the left field line. I think that would have been a more entertaining way to beat the shift, but I guess they did what they did. Ray, you got anything more to add on that? No, I, th I guess the other thing I was waiting for that we haven't seen yet, but might be the downstream effect, is the wh whether teams actually start playing different players or different different caliber of players at those infield positions because of these rules. Um, I, I don't think I can answer that yet, but you know, anecdotally. I never expected Taylor Wallace to get as many at-bats in Tampa as he has the first half this year. He's gone completely cold in the last month, and I think maybe his window is closing. But I, but there's one canonical example of a guy who's playing a lot because of his glove, and I wonder if we're going to see more of that um, as teams try to figure out, you know, and I assume we're still doing analysis and still figuring out um, the ripple effects of these changes and how to best build a lineup offensively and defensively around them. Teams may have very, may very well have findings about that already, but obviously you're limited by the personnel you have on your roster and in your organization. So maybe you can't change that immediately, but I wonder if as we get into this coming off season and the rules continue to evolve and teams crunch data, whether you know there are team construction aspects to this that we're going to uh, going to still see unfold down the road. And if we start yeah. seeing a lot of uh, defensive specialists getting more full time play, I'm thinking of Mark Belanger back in the day with the Orioles. Like they started him, it was a really poor hitter, relatively speaking, decent bunter. But I think his batting average for his career, I'd be surprised if it was over 230 or something like that in an era when that was a pretty low batting average. But they were willing to tolerate it because of the defensive value that he provided. And I'm thinking about it, especially in my American League only league, it's hard enough to find infielders who can hit. <laughs> and now if the teams are actually saying, we don't care if he can hit as long as he can field, that's going to make those infielders who can hit all the more valuable in drafts. You know, we're going to have to start adjusting our expectations of the players. Therefore, we're going to have to revalue them and move a guy like Manny Machado all of a sudden moves way up or a guy like Gunnar Henderson moves way up because not only can they field, but they can hit. And that's going to be a, a huge thing. Sorry, Todd, I interrupted you. You were going to say something? No, it's good. Well, for, you know, hey, scarcity's back. When, maybe you guys see this or know this. It was a couple, at this point, about a month ago. I saw a tweet from Sports Info Solutions that said the Miami Marlins are the best at positioning their players uh, within the within the current rules. So this is something that is being measured. 
and this is great what you were speaking of, you know, more numbers. So how it's being measured, I don't know. It's something I want to look into, maybe make a couple of phone calls to if I still have some connections, you know, to, 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 to learn a little bit about it. But these are the data that we know. And, and, you know, we don't know that this is sticky. We don't know if the Marlins will always, you know, it's just the, their coach. Is it a Marlins thing now or the first two months they happen to, you know, have their players where they're supposed to be more than other teams. But it is something that's out there. And you know that the people measuring it and looking into it. And I think, as is with all statistics, they're kind of, you know, private until they become mainstream. And I think we may know soon enough, you know, God forbid, when the announcers say this club is the best at positioning players without the, you know, without the shift. Yeah. And, you know, some of that is personnel too. And I'm sure with enough work, you can, you know, tease out the positioning you know, and how much versus how much ground the infielders are coming covering versus where their position before the play starts. But you know, let's not forget the the Marlins have an infield full of like shortstops by trade, right? You know, got Segura at third base. Well, and, you know, Arias, and yeah, but you know, not, not very good. They're not very good, but you know, they are they are a versatile bunch of guys. Well, I mean, to me, I found this interesting because I was most concerned about the Marlins and Alcantara and the ground balls. Yeah. And no shifting, and John Birdie and Joey Wendell, and like you mentioned, Arise playing second, Segura over the third. I thought their de- their infield defense would be a disaster. Yeah, they still may not be the best defenders, but whether whether it's Kim Ang up in the uh, office hiring the right people, they're having their players in the right spot. And all these guys, you know, they Joey Wendell can you know, he may not be able to do the jump throw or some of these other plays, but you know, if the ground ball is hit to short, he'll pick it up and he'll throw it first and he'll get the guy out. And that's what they were able to do. It's interesting. You could, you know, not to go too deep down this rabbit hole, but you contrast what the Marlins are doing compared to the way the Astros were built a couple of years ago, where the Astros were winning everything in the battle at the plate. They were walking more than, more than their opponents. They were just, you know, their, their pitchers were striking out a ton more people than they were striking out. They were winning the battle on balls, not put in play. Right. And that's and strikeouts. The Marlins seemingly are trying to do the opposite. They're making contact at the plate and you know as you with this stat that you're citing they're trying to win the babbit battle on the field right which is a, which is the, uh, the complete other side of the coin which just you know goes to show to me that there are still a lot of different ways to uh to try to gain an edge out there and there's also the to keep in mind the fact that teams are still shifting they're just doing it differently i've seen teams move the right fielder into where the second baseman used to go out and hide uh, in that sort of soft line drive spot and the the center fielder comes over and plays two-thirds of the way towards right and the left fielder goes way over and starts playing more up in center because they don't expect an outfield ball to be hit to that side so they just put one of the guys who's in the outfield and effectively move him into the right-hand side of the infield. Although he has to be on the grass, I don't know if he can stand on the dirt. I know if you're a second baseman, you have to stand on the dirt, but if you're an outfielder, can you come in and stand on the dirt? They used to do that every so often in the ninth when it was a tie game and you, you know, you didn't care if he hit it to the outfield because he was going to tag up and and score the winning run, but they would put five guys in the infield back in the day. You can't? I think, I think you can. I've seen it once. But I think you have to like tell the umpires what you're doing. Oh, okay. Something like that. You have to like it's almost like you're declaring that this offensive lineman right. is eligible receiver, <laughs> if you will. And I, yeah, I, I think it may have even been Boston did it early in the year, like you're saying. You put the fifth infielder to try to cut the run or get the double play or whatever it might be. 
Before we leave this topic, I wondered if there were any other rules changes that you thought had fantasy effect. And the reason I thought of it, because I thought of one, and that is the change in how call-ups are treated in the CBA has, I think, really encouraged teams to call up their top prospects way earlier than ever. And that has created a flood of young players, good young players, into the game. You look at Cincinnati alone, Ellie, of course, Spencer Steer, Matt McLean. These guys are all starting, they're all contributing, and I think this is great for baseball, but I also think it presents issues for the fantasy game, because if you think about it, the potential to really change how we manage our rosters in season looks fairly obvious, but we also have to start thinking about this in our draft planning. How many slots are we going to give to prospects that we think might get called up, because we don't want to get beaten to the punch in that regard? How many players do we actually draft with on the 23-man roster rather than in reserve. How do we maintain that balance? Especially if you dovetail that with what's going on with the defensive fielders, if all of a sudden every team has a fielder or two who can't hit, then maybe you think, well, I can I can grab, you know, John Birdie without speed kind of thing or Joey Wendell, or I could take a chance on, you know, Christian Encarnacion Strand. What have I got to lose, you know? Right? Yeah, I think well, for me, it's uh, the the other ripple effect of that that you didn't directly hit PD, but is related is fab management. I mean, it's not too long ago that you know it was a common trope you would hear um, from fantasy analysts. You know, when a call up came up in late May or early June, that oh, this is the last big guy coming up this year, right? You know, it's time to blow your fab. There's nobody behind him. Like that's not the model anymore. <laughs> the model is there's a new there's a there's a new flavor of the week every week. Because they just keep, you know, they keep bringing them up, and you know, the Orioles alone have gone, you know, Westberg and Kowser and Grayson Rodriguez is going to be back, and you know, we can, um, you know, these these guys keep coming, and you know, you talked about the, you know, the flood of the Reds, and then we haven't even gotten to the point where, you know, now there's this other rule where you get into the rookie of the year eligibility the following year and the bonus that the team gets, um, you know, in terms of draft pick compensation, if a guy is on the roster on opening day and wins the rookie of the year. So you, there's, there's a window, the, 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 the um, Orioles did it with Gunnar Henderson last year where you can call the guy up in like late August and still, you know, squeak him under the plate appearance limit to be rookie of the year eligible the following year, but give him the cup of coffee the five or six weeks in the majors to acclimate him so that he hopefully hits the ground running the following year and actually wins you that rookie of the year award. So we might see that with uh, you know a couple of guys this year. There's it, to be to be clear, it's still better to spend your fab early and get your. Um, you know, get more bang for your buck in terms of percentage of the season you have the guy available for. But there's more of a constant, maybe not consistent, but regular flow of call-ups coming. And I think people have not adjusted their fab spending to allow for that. And it's also worth noting that uh, th those kind of players, there's a lot of them. Uh, I was looking at Twitter the other day and uh, Christian Encarnacion Strands came up. People were saying, why hasn't he been called up? And it might be exactly what you say, Ray, that they, they're trying to keep him for next year with that rookie eligibility because they want that extra draft pick. And they really don't need him at the present time. It looks like they've got all the batting that they need. Uh, also, I, uh, yeah, and Justin Henry Malloy in Detroit was an, another name that got mentioned. You'd think that the Tigers would look at the situation. They're not that far of uh, the lead in their division, although they're terrible. 
And why aren't they calling up this guy to replace one of the banjo hitters that they've got? And the answer is they want him to maintain that rookie eligibility because they want the draft pick. And they didn't bring him up early enough this year. So, Todd, what do you think? All right. So just to to, wrap, or to, to tag on to what you guys have been talking about, it's all cause and effect. We're I think we're still seeing, and I agree completely, that the rules are greasing the skids for these earlier promotions. But I also I think we're also still seeing the the inventory is still pretty high of the number of players in part because of the lost lost time for the pandemic. So it it's it's kind of the, a confluence of the inventory is high and it's more palatable to bring them up. So I don't know that we can continue to see this level of of, of players. I mean, it's always you know it's just. We're, going to, we're always going to see this level, but I mean, it's it's kind of staggered in that we're going to see some of the earlier. Bubble, yeah. So, um, you know, as an uh, you know offshoot, I can't wait to the Stratomatic uh, draft next year with all these rookies. But that's neither here nor there. Um, the the change that I'm still I'm, tr- I'm trying to I it's, it's almost as if I want to believe there's something we can do fantasy wise. So I maybe maybe stretching a little bit here. But from a fan's point of view, I love the new schedule. I love that every team's playing every team. And there's a, a, a silly narrative or maybe a not-so-silly narrative. There's two roommates from high school that playing each other. You know, it's, there's always something. And it just you – know, not that they need another reason, but, it, you know, it's, it, it makes watching the games more fun. But it's also allowing the AL East to have all 500 teams and the AL Central to have almost every team below 500. So – and and I think that you know it's gonna that will have a, re, a residual effect on the trade deadline. So if there's a fantasy effect, it's it's trying to figure out the buyers and the sellers when it, it, it's even more. It's it's easier to make the playoffs three or four teams from the same division because you're playing each other fewer times, and you're able to beat up on some of the lesser teams outside the division. So if there is a ramification, it has to do with planning for the the stretch and trying to figure out what players are going to get more or less playing time. It's always speculative, speculative, but now it's even more so just because there's so many more teams where we really can't say buy, sell, sell, buy. Well, guys, this has been super interesting so far. Let's take a break. We can all hydrate and uh, get ready to come back. We'll give out our fantasy awards and maybe talk some boons and banes for the rest of the season. Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire. Ed Ray Murphy writes for BaseballHQ.com and co-manages the site. When we come back, it's part two of our special All-Star Break Roundtable edition. But right now, I get to mention some of the great resources on the site at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. We have player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today and roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow. We have buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers. We take deep dives on pitcher pitch mixes in the Arsenal report, and we have analysis of batting order changes in the lineup outlook column. There's fantasy market analysis in the Market Pulse, long shot suggestions in the Speculator column, player injury analysis in the Big Hurt column, and team injury reports. We have gaming strategy analysis for rotisserie, points, leagues, NFBC, and alternative formats. There's all kinds of prospect and scouting coverage and groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. 
As well, we have tools like the player projections updated every day, updated depth charts, daily dashboards, pitcher matchups planners, bullpen indicators, batter consistency reports, complete pitcher PQS logs, potential sergers and faders, and other leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. Add it all up. Expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick David here with Ray Murphy from Baseball HQ, Todd Zola from Masters Ball and ESPN and pretty much every podcast and radio show that is out there. And guys, uh, every year when we do this, we always talk about our fantasy awards for the first half, and then we'll do it again at the end of the year. Let's start, as we always do, with the busts of the season so far. Uh, Ray, let's start with you on the 2023 fantasy baseball bust hitter. Um, maybe not the absolute most disappointing hitter, but one of the ones I find the most surprising slash aggravating, uh, I'm going to go with Dalton Varsho, uh, who on the surface hasn't had a terrible season with 12 home runs and 11 stolen bases. Uh, he's being hampered by a 214 batting average. Uh, you know, the casual eligibility sort of saves some of the utility of this line, but I think it's a little bit illustrative that, that 12 home run, 11 stolen base season is not all that valuable. I've got it as $12 in AL only and you know, way less than that in a mixed league, which just goes to show you that the 11 stolen bases are so diluted in this environment and the, the 214 batting average is obviously poison. Uh, you know, given his draft price, you know, I saw him by mid-late March was, you know, the third round pick kind of thing. Uh, this is just not what we signed up for here. And obviously I don't like to pick injured guys here, but Varsho is a guy who's been just healthy and wildly underperforming. Todd, who's your fantasy bust hitter for the first half? All right. It's, it's kind of similar reasoning as Ray. I'm going with Trey Turner in that, all right, in a vacuum, a lot of players like 10 homers, 19 steals, maybe a little higher than 247 average. But what we expected from Turner and how we drafted our teams in our positions and our categories, the fact that he's not producing as we had hoped, I think is just it's it's not just a bad, you know, individual player. It's hurting our team construct. It's making us manage categories in a different way. And I, to me, and, and I think one of the, uh, it's frustrating that he, you know, hit 18 home runs in the World Baseball Classic and where did that go? But I think it, it's so, you know, towards the end, he wasn't the number one pick, but he was earlier on. So I think Trey Turner has just, has made you work harder on offense and as we talked about in the first segment, you need to really work hard on pitching this year. And I don't know that you can do both. And, you know, if you, you know, the, if you took Turner over Acuna, there's just no getting over that. I don't care. Well, what you, oh. I, don't, I don't care what you do in the rest of your draft. <laughs> no, that's, that's for sure. Uh, I actually yeah. had Trey Turner as my choice as well. But uh, as we always do, we have backups in these situations. So I'll take uh, MJ Melendez. If you leave out the guys unaffected by a lot of uh, 
playing time lost through injury, Tim Anderson comes to mind. Melendez has been quite a disaster for many of his fantasy managers. His ADP was in the seventh. His year-to-date performance basically makes him undraftable. Uh, the big culprit, he's only hitting 206 with a 289 on base percentage. He's got a 29% hit rate to 285 BABIP, so that should correct a little, but I don't know if it's going to be something more serious than that, and certainly the team context is not going to help him create a lot of value. And he's going to lose catcher eligibility next year, right? Right. And the the reason he was a seventh-round pick this year, I think, was because of that yeah. catcher eligibility. So next year, gosh, he could fall 15 rounds, you know. Uh, yep. Let's move on uh, 2023 fantasy bust pitcher in the first half. Uh, Todd, why don't you lead us off? Oh, well, Brady Singer's a little low-hanging fruit, so I'll uh, I'll leave that first half little of the talk dis- discussion where it was. All right, there's two. There was one that I was higher on, so I'm going to take the big L with Alec Manoa. And I, it's to me, it was an injury, right? I um, mean, you know, some of these guys were injury. He was just terrible. And we know the story. I don't. We don't need to rehash that. Um the, the, um, the part we don't know is, was the pitch clock part of it? I'd like to think it was. I think there's enough anecdotal evidence. But Alec Manoa, from where he was drafted, especially because there was some of, um, you know what, I think I know he's low on strikeouts, but I think there's more there. So I think that he may have been a little overdrafted. He's just crushing it. Uh, crushing your team, not crushing it. Crushing your last, last start against Detroit, notwithstanding. My pick is Sandy Alcantara of Miami, a consensus second rounder. His year to date has been pretty much undraftable, a 472 ERA, 125 whip, just three wins and 94 strikeouts. One thing you like about Alcantara is he gets you innings. He's got 114 innings so far, but a 13% strikeout minus walk rate doesn't fill me full of confidence. And now I'm hearing that there may be a change in that people are talking about Miami getting into the trade market. They tend to trade their really good pitchers a year too early rather than a year too late. So there's a possibility that Alcantara ends up in a stronger team context, which would be more interesting for fantasy managers. But in the meantime, fantasy managers who have Alcantara on their rosters must be really uh, squirming in their seats trying to figure out what to do about him. Uh, Ray, what do you think? Well, I knew I was going third here, so I dug <laughs> to get somebody. Brady Singer. Um, no, I'm actually going to go with um, way way further down the player pool. The guy who's just tortured me this year has been uh, Rafael Montero, okay. who I thought was a really nice you know end game, you know round twenty plus, you know give you solid ratios, a dozen saves when Presley inevitably you know needs days off or hits the IL, kind of just like he did last year. Um, and not only has Montero not gotten no saves, he has not gotten no saves because he has just been absolutely awful. ERA of six and a half, a WHIP of one point six. I did three of those. NFBC gladiator drafts, which are just 23 round, no subs, you know, take it and run with it. And I was thought I was super smart grabbing Montero in the last rounds of all three of those. And he has absolutely just trashed all three of those teams. So, you know, certainly lower investment than Alcantara, lower investment than Brady Singer. But if you couldn't get away from him, the damage is just remarkable. Let's move on to the 2023 fantasy rookie of the year to date. I'll go first, and I suspect uh, I might hear some votes for L.E.D. LaCruz. 
But for me, it's going to be his teammate, Spencer Steer, who has rung up an $18 fantasy season so far by the custom draft guide at Baseball HQ. Now, the rest of the season's a different story. I'm 100% aboard the Ellie train just on stolen bases alone. But based on year-to-date production so far, I'm steering towards Spencer. Uh, Ray, who do you like? Um, I like... Corbin Carroll, who I thought was an easy pick in this category until Ellie came along and said, hold my beer. Um, But, you know, let's not diminish what uh, Carroll has done with, uh, you know, over the course of the entire first half, not just Ellie's 30 days or whatever it is, but, uh, you know, 290 batting average, 18 home runs, 26 stolen bases, just a remarkable debut by all all accounts. And, you know, someone who pending what we find out about the, health of his shoulder over the course of the second half of the season is really just injecting himself into, you know, you know, upper first round conversations for 2024. I would have taken Carroll myself, but he was a third round, late second, early third round pick in a lot of drafts, including the ones I was in. So I didn't think that the value that he provided, although it's more than a guy like Spencer Steer is not so much more that uh, I think Steer's more valuable because he's more profitable, I guess is what I'm saying. Todd, who's your fantasy rookie? Um, Corbin Carroll is one of the top five overall learners. I think that he's justified. I'm going to go with a guy who only just got hurt, Asterio Ruiz. And it's, I mean, it's all about the stolen bases. Although he's got a, you know, a, a little bit higher number of RBI than one might expect for one home run on the Oakland A's. I think it's like 35 RBI, which I mean, it's not great, but if you, you know, you're going to give me 50 or, or 60 on that club, I'll take it all the time. It's just, you know, we're talking about stolen bases, giving you so many. He probably allows you to trade, I don't know, Whit Merrifield, someone like that, uh, who you can get a lot for, um, or trade Corbin Carroll. You know, he allows you to make a trade or you trade Ruiz himself, but right now he's hurt. So I just think that, uh, yeah, I'm going to give that, I'm going to give it to, uh, Mystery Ruiz and hope that he's better for the or back after the All Star break. I think it's a remarkable statement on the overall stolen base market that Ruiz has exceeded my my expectations, but was on track of delivering the most you know the bulk of the most optimistic projections for him, which were like well, seventy five stolen bases or more. And yet, even with the RBIs, his dollar value this year in a mixed league is something like. 21, 22 bucks. I mean, still good, but if you gave, if you dropped 75 stolen bases in a player pool last year, he would, he would have been a first round value. Esther Ruiz also hitting close to 260, I think, which is maybe something of a surprise, although I bet you there's a fair amount of leg hits involved there. And I wonder if the shift helped him. Uh, Let's go to our fantasy Cy Young award winner. Uh, Ray, start us off. Who's the first half best pitcher for fantasy baseball? Well, when the most valuable pitcher in our custom draft guide shows up, uh, with from an ADP outside the top 200, uh, easy choice for me for Nathan Ivaldi, who has you know perhaps more surprisingly than anything else been healthy this year. Uh, we certainly knew he was capable of being effective uh, when healthy, but he's hung up 118 innings of sub three ERA and over 100 strikeouts in the first half. Ten wins don't hurt either. So uh, I was I was actually you know it's just a couple of pennies, but I was actually surprised that uh, just in our rankings this morning, uh, year to date, he popped up as the number one pitcher in the player pool. So easy choice for me. Todd, well, I had Ivaldi, and I'm I, I'm going. I'm just trying to decide real quick um, if I'm going to go Zach Allen or Felix Batista. 
You know what? I think I'm going to go Bautista because he, his ratios, all right, they're lucky, blah, blah, who cares? We don't, they're there. This is, they count in our standings. Um, his ratios are, they move the needle for a reliever, which you, you, you more so than almost any other reliever. It's just, they're, they're ridiculous. And there was a time where he had more strikeouts. He had like 50th in league in strikeouts, which doesn't see ah, 50th. That's among starters. That means it was one yeah. starter and two thirds of the league had one other starter that had more strikeouts than a reliever, than a closer. So I'm going to give it, I'm going to give it to Bautista. 51% strikeout rate so oh. far this year. It's ama- It really is amazing. And when I think back to the leagues I was in, and of course you're trying to calibrate, well, which guy do I want? And inevitably you end up with Class A and uh, maybe uh, J- uh, Romano in Toronto. Uh, I know a lot of people looked at Bautista, but a lot of people didn't, and I bet they wish they had. No, but- don't forget there was a health scare on him in March. He was like way behind in spring training with a yeah. shoulder or whatever it was, which scared me off of him in a bunch of places. Oops. He had... <laughs> He had, a, I mean, they were just using him like a you know rental car left and right. But he had about a week of kind of natural. I mean, I don't think it was planned. Where he just wasn't used. I don't know, maybe three or four weeks ago. I think that just came was very serendipitous for the Orioles. And then when you could put Yenny or Cano in there, oh, yeah. but he's just off. Let's just put this Cano guy in instead. He oh, only man. strikes out forty five percent of the bat. <laughs> <Yeah>, There's <laughs> a reason why Baltimore's. If, if when if people are listening to say in a week. Uh, they may be in first place. Oh, it's, it's unbelievable. It's anyway. unbelievable. Yeah, they, they're and they're just absolutely loaded for bear for the next couple of years. That I've talked about this in the last couple of weeks. I think, including with Ray, about this chain of prospects that they have. There's so many of them that they literally ha- can't stuff them into the uh, lineup anymore. You know, they've they've called up Westberg, but they've got other shortstops lined up in the queue. It's like Cincinnati, uh, same thing. I wonder if there's going to be some trades here with, at the deadline where they kind of get rid of some of their offensive uh, prospects to get some useful pitching, which is something they need. Uh, I looked at two guys, uh, Mitch Keller and Tyler Wells, both essentially undrafted, both roughly fourth rounders for the year so far. Their ERAs, strikeout rates, walk rates, and strikeout minus walks, they're all very similar, but Wells has a sub one whip and pitches in a much better team context to get wins in Baltimore. So uh, Tyler Wells gets my fantasy Cy Young vote for this year. And finally, let's start with Todd, uh, 2023 fantasy most valuable hitter. I make this one easy, and I, I we can argue my method. When you get profit from the number one pick, that's just silly. Ronald, and not only that, if you if you look at the Statcast numbers, Ronald Cunha has been air quote unlucky. It's it's just ridiculous. I mean, I'm giving it to Acuna. I know other have provided more profit, whatever. What he's done, I mean, we talk Otani. What what Acuna has done with the stolen bases and everything else. Uh, I don't want to say historic. Well, you know what? It's a historical fantasy season. So far, and I did have Acuna based on my formula is profit plus value earned. 
you want a lot of value earned. And if it's very profitable at the same time, then that's a, that's the winner for me. And, uh, Acuna was number one on my list. So I'm going to shift over to a slightly different approach. Lane Thomas, the outfielder in Washington okay. is hitting just over 300. He's got 14 home runs, 15 home runs, close to 50, st- uh, RBIs on a team that doesn't score a lot of runs. And he's contributed eight stolen bases, which I don't know if many of us saw coming a $22 borderline first round performance from a guy who was drafted in the 21st round. I'll take that all day on and twice on Sunday. And I might even, if I got that from that level, I might even be happy not to have had Acuna because this is a lot mm-hmm. of profit. Ray, who do you pick? I'm sticking with Acuna. And I think the only other point I have going forward is if Acuna maintains this performance for the rest of the season, I, I think there's going to be more controversy than ever about how the first pick and drafts gets awarded next year, because he's going to be so far and away the uh, consensus number one pick to a degree we haven't seen in any number of years. The Gretzky yeah. problem. Or, or Ladanian Tomlinson for those. Yeah. That, uh... Right. It's a new problem to our sport. Other, uh, well, <laughs> other, uh, other games yeah. have had that problem for years. Third round reversal is because yep. of Ladanian. Will, will baseball need to do that? Well, we'll see. There's plenty of data for the NFPC, and we'll see where the winning team. If if a lot of the winning yeah, teams I'm very curious Cunha. to see how many yeah. Cunha yeah. people win their leagues. Yeah, yeah. Well, all it takes is Brady Singer to ruin that. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, I I know about third round reversal. Are there any other sort of techniques or methods that leagues can use to try to redress the balance of a of a seriously uh, a unicorn level first overall pick who's fifteen dollars ahead of the field? Some of the private NFBC leagues use bidding of fab to bid on the draft slot. So like yes. you, you can, you can weigh out like $400 of fab to get the number one pick in Acuna, but then you're working with a 60% fab budget for the rest of the year or whatever the, whatever the calculus ends up being. That's an interesting thing. So instead of a Kentucky Derby system, you bid on, on your. Yeah. It's essentially, it's essentially auctioning off the draft slots. Yeah. Yeah. I do that for draft. It's literally that it's, it's I'm, I'm up. I'll nominate the number three spot for $20 and we oh, have an auction. Not a blind and, auction. So yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. And then what makes it interesting in this league, I mean, a little off topic, we have a, it's private uh, AL only, NL only, and we have a mixed one as well. We also have a minor league draft, which is reverse order of the major league draft. So you're screwing yourself in a minor league draft. That's nice. So you can you can bid. You know, everybody bids on one, two, and three, and on thirteen, fourteen, and fifteen mm-hmm. because they want the number one minor league pick in a certain year. But anyway, yes. So that Peter PD, that is to me. I mean, I'll, let's just have an auction draft, which is the real answer. But yeah, bidding on bidding on Fab if you're able to do it, or, or bidding on your draft spot is a great idea. It is. It's a terrific idea, and now I'm really looking forward to next year to see how leagues uh, figure it out, especially in leagues where uh, national league only or mixed yeah, leagues. Nice. And Todd, you're on the Tout Wars board. Has the subject been behind the scenes uh, subject of discussion? No, not yet. Um, everything's up, you know, we talk in Arizona every year and perhaps, although, you know what we do do, and maybe, I don't know, what we do do is we, we, our KDS is whoever won the league the previous year gets to choose their draft spot. So that even more so than normal said, well, I'll take in number one people usually do anyway. So I guess it's, it's, it's worth rethinking. But I think ultimately we do have to see. I think it's going to be less of an impact than in football. Uh, you still have 22 other players. 
yes, you have such a huge advantage with Acuna, um, but you know what? Acuna can break his leg next month. Yeah, year. I was going to say, for as much controversy as there is, if he goes out and breaks his leg the first month of next season, everybody's, you know, what did we do that for? So, but anyway. And Acuna is hitting over 330 because I was thinking, I think I was thinking that if batting average didn't count, I thought Ellie De La Cruz might be able to give him a run for his money next year by stealing, you know, 90 bases or whatever he's on track for, plus all the home runs and stuff. But uh, Ronald Acuna is in a league by himself right now. Uh, let's move on to our closing segment, uh, second half Boons and Banes. We haven't done this before, but I figured I end every show with Boons and Banes. Might as well do it <laughs> for this one. Uh, we'll start with a, a Boon hitter for the rest of the season. And uh, my choice is Henry Davis of Pittsburgh. He's a guy who's eligible at catcher in most leagues. And he's had a slow start, but his pedigree, especially what he was doing in the high minors earlier this year, kind of belies the slow start. I think Henry Davis could really be a guy who returns a fair amount of value on a relatively low investment. Uh, Ray, who you got for a boon hitter? I'm going to stay close to home. My pick is uh, Tristan Casas. A couple of quick stats on him. Uh, got off to a slow start, but month over month, April, May, and June, his contact rate has gone 64%, 69%, 75%. His hard contact index, your metric uh, from years ago, PD, has gone 75, 112, 131. So he's gone from 25% below league average to 31% above. There's just a lot. You know, it, It's clearly a case of a guy figuring things out on the fly, and I think he's teed up for a pretty big second half. Tristan Cass is a, is a great story this year. Todd, who's your boon hitter for the rest of the season? I'm going to stick close to you, PD, and I'm going to go with Vlad Guerrero. And I know he's all right, he's not having a terrible year, but his the underlying metrics are better than they were last year. He's just not getting the results. Talked about Toronto being a little bit unlucky with runners in scoring position, so the production should recover. Uh, I'm just looking for a monster two and a half months from Vlad. I wrote Vlad. I hope I didn't mean Vlad Sedler. I assume I meant Guerrero. <laughs> Vladimir Guerrero. My wife is a fan of the Blue Jays, so we watch a lot of Blue Jays games, and I've never seen so, a guy hit so many 110-mile-an-hour outs <laughs> Out. <laughs> in, in my life. It's astonishing how hard he hits the ball, and I think it, it might be one of those cases where he hits it too hard, and if he gets a lot of topspin on it, it, it prevents it from going to, all the way to the fence, and he just hits a lot of screaming line drives. Uh, let's go over to the pitcher side. Uh, Ray, who's your 2023 rest-of-season Boone pitcher? I'm going to go with Lucas Giolito. Got off to a little bit of a slow start that has tamped down his outward stats, but it really seems like month over month, May and June, things have gotten better there. Obviously, he was terrible last year, and a lot of that seemed like it was rooted in uh, velocity and swing strike um, erosion. And those numbers have been recovering in that month over month improvement. And then on top of that, you throw in uh, – you know, I haven't specifically paid too much attention to the rumor mill, but it's it certainly seems like Giolito is somebody that the White Sox would put on the block, um, which could improve his uh, second half team context and maybe even his, uh, you know, his home park, his pitching environment. Hey, they could send, you know, three guys to, you know, Baltimore could send three guys to the White Sox from that unending farm system to get the front of the rotation starter uh, that we're talking about. But regardless of where he ends up, uh, you know, I, I think everything's trending in the right direction for Giolito. He's had good success and pitched at a really high level before, and I think the, uh, the the stink of last year and the slow start are still 
maybe holding down his market value a little bit. Todd, who's your boon pitcher for the second half? You Darvish. Um, you know, every week, if you're listening to this podcast, you know all about the luck metrics. The you know, Lady Luck has not been you Darvish's friend, left on base, Babip, whatever, whatever it might be. Um, I think he's just to be the same guy and organically going to get better. I think the team will be better, the Padres of the second half. So I think everything will just mushroom. And I haven't, I haven't noticed anything, the pitches and velocity that, you know, a reason, if you will. I just think he's, you know, when there's so many, you know, someone's going to flip heads 30, you know, 32 times, uh, six times uh, out of, out of, uh, out of six flips, one out of 32 is going to do it. It's just, he's at that end of the probability uh, spectrum. And I think things will get better. And my boon pitcher for the second half is Alec Manoa. We talked about him earlier. I think a lot of people, uh, including fantasy players, might have misread what his demotion meant. He was sent down to the complex league, they call it, and everybody said, oh, they've completely given up on this guy. They didn't even just send him down to AAA. They sent him all the way down to basically to where rookies go. And the fact is the complex league, somebody told me the Blue Jays have spent $100 million in that complex league setup with pitching labs and extra coaching and all of the latest bells and whistles. And they sent him down there because they wanted to retool some of his pitches, that something had gone wrong with his pitch mix and his pitch shapes. He came back. I thought he looked pretty good in his double-A start, uh, despite the the outcome, and really solid against Detroit. I know it's only Detroit, but Alec is a pretty good pitcher, and I think maybe he's going to still be available for pennies on the dollar so that's uh, somebody to keep in mind as you're doing, getting into your trades in your fantasy leagues. Uh, over to the Baines. Uh, let's start with a hitter. Todd, will you go first on a 2023 batter who's going to be a Bane for the second half? Yeah, the listeners are going to like, Zola, you could have done better than this. Um, and only won't care. Uh, Gerardo Perdomo. And all right, he may be a middle infielder in your mixed league, but all of the underlying metrics are worse than they were last year and he was terrible as a batter you know he can he can pick it so to me it's more about the type of analysis that you do when you're looking for this sort of thing and if you look at Perdomo's stat cast page again he's worse in everything than he was last and he didn't hit the ball hard last year he's hitting it even softer this year so all right if you have him in your mixed league as your middle infielder find someone new and if he's in your annual only team see if you can deal him Geraldo Perdomo Okay, I'll take Luke Rayleigh in in Tampa. He's 14 or 15 home runs this year so far, but he's 65% contact rate. He's, he's striking out roughly a third of the time, and I just don't think that a guy who strikes out that often is going to be victimized. And the other part of it is that uh, Tampa's going to have a lot of choices. So there's no player on Tampa, I think, has a really long rope because if somebody stops producing, they're going to stop playing because they, they are not stuck with players like say Detroit might be with Javier Baez. You look at it, that guy and you say, okay, he's not hitting We but we've got $60 million tied up in him. We've got nobody to take his place. He's going to keep playing even though he's, uh, he's killing us. And this is maybe not this year, but in years past. So, um, yeah, I, I think Luke Rayleigh might be a guy who could be a bane for the second half mine is cody bellinger uh on the surface it looks like okay. his sort of one year bet on himself thing is working out really well with the cubs and 
with a $21 NL only valuation, you know, the, the outward stats back that up. I don't like what I see under the hood here. Uh, nine home runs and 11 stolen bases with a 298 batting average is where that value is coming from. But on the plus side, he's hitting for more contact. His 80% contact rate is back to right in line with his halcyon days of 2018-2019. But his hard, hard contact is his lowest level ever, which tells me he's not hitting the ball hard at all because he's still making contact. He's just not driving the ball. Um, the 298 batting average is propped up by a 34% hit rate, a 340 BABIP, which is a career high for him. And that BABIP can't stay as high as it is when he's still hitting fly balls at a 46, 47% rate. Um, so all of this stuff just says to me that uh, there's been more um, fortunate regression than actual skills regression back toward the guy that Bellinger used to be. And those 11 stolen bases we've talked about a bunch of times, you know, are on pace for a career high for Bellinger, but in a world where stolen bases are freely abundant, that's just not that impressive. Uh, the nine home runs is, you know, on pace for, you know, probably what we should expect Bellinger's you know, career norm to be at this point outside of the 47 home run barrage from 2019. But the batting average looks like it's got nothing but downside for me. So I'm out on Cody Bellinger for the rest of the year. And finally, how about a Bain pitcher? Ray, why don't you start us off? I'm kind of pessimistic about Aaron Nola. And maybe this is me carrying some scars from going back to 2021 when Aaron Noah's disappointing season looked a lot like the current disappointing season. He, he was terrible in 21 relative to expectations. He had an ERA, uh, you know, 463, despite pretty good skills. Last year, he came back, repeated the skills, but got much better results with a 325 ERA that was way more in line with um, expectations and his, and his skill-based metrics. But this year, the ERA has jumped back up toward the mid fours. He's at 439 at the moment. The expected ERA has crept up. The, the skills are the worst we've seen in several years. There's a little bit of erosion in velocity. There's erosion in swing strike rate. There's erosion in strikeout rate. Um, I, I, I'm concerned this is not just another random bout of bad luck versus skills from Nola, that the skills are actually creeping down this time. He's carried a ton of workload in the last number of years. And, uh, you know, he may be just a little bit of an old age 30 at this point with a little bit of mileage on the arm. And we may not, uh, we may not get back the vintage version that he showed us last year. And, you know, certainly going back to the, uh, to late the last decade before that. Todd, who's your Bane pitcher for the second half? Just a real quick tag on what Ray's saying about Nola. My uh, one of my ex, uh, Sirius XM partner Eric Halterman pointed out from day one last year the Phillies pitching had pretty much the longest season in the history of baseball. Yep, making it through the wild card and extending series. And Nola was a big part of that. So he was avoiding Nola and Zach Wheeler just because the the number of innings that they each pitched last year. Whether that's the cause and effect, I don't know, but it is something to keep in mind. All right. Um, having having said that. I'm going to go Dane Dunning of Texas. Hopefully, I didn't. Hopefully, you did not seen PD scramble for another guy now. Hopefully, I didn't take his guy twice in a row. Dunning's to a point where people are trusting him because he's on Texas, who's really good. He's got eight wins and and this and that. And he started. I mean, he wasn't starting, and now he is. So I think he. You know, we need pitching. I, Dane Dunning is going to be the guy that's going to rescue me from Brady Singer. No, he's not. Uh, strikeout rate is. Is, he wishes it was pedestrian. 
it's 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 low, uh, and I think that we're false sense of security with the with the with the surface stats on Dane Dunning. I think the regression monster is going to bite him and bite him pretty fierce over the final two and a half months. Well, you didn't manage to snipe me, so I'm uh, happy about that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very leery of Marcus Stroman's $25 first half because his skills look to me to be pretty similar to past years. 26% hit rate, though, is well down from his 30% career norm, despite a jump in ground balls and no shifts. And his 74% strand rate is also a bit of a red flag, although we'd expect a high ground ball pitcher to do a little better in that regard. And if you don't trust me, you can ask Ray. A uh, higher than normal strand rate and a lower than normal hit rate is not a recipe for continued success. His strikeout minus walk rate is just 13%. Walk rate is up to 9%. So if his hit rate regresses to the usual 30% or so, his whip's going to jump from its 111 rate. And his overall skills metric is 89 this year, way below his mark in the last couple of years when it was around 120 or so. All right, boys, this has been uh, terrific fun and very interesting. I appreciate you taking the time. Before we go, maybe we could talk briefly about First Pitch Arizona. Ray, what's the status of the, this year's event? Yeah, so the, November 2nd to 5th, 2023, we're back at the uh, Sheraton Mesa Wrigleyville across the street from Sloan Park out in Mesa. Super, uh, we've had a registration open for a couple of weeks. You can hit the uh, First Pitch Arizona logo on Baseball HQ's front page to get all of the details we've got early bird registration wrapped up we're into our sort of second phase of registration now uh we're also doing outreach to all of our industry friends and speakers so we'll have a but we'll have some announcements in the next couple of weeks about the program about speakers that sort of thing uh we're really sort of starting to bang the drum now with uh with this stuff todd you going out i am and I used to politic, put me on this panel, put me on that panel. As Ray can attest, and you too as well, Petey, having gone there, the quality of the younger people in this industry is makes me happy. It's it, I, I I don't think I, you know, I don't need the, the airtime anymore. I'm happy to, whatever you need me to do, guys, and just watch these other guys shine. You know, I'm a little bit older at this point. Uh, it's it's kind of nice that I'm able to do that. But I think just having I just sit back and I'm the creepy guy in the corner that just kind of keeps nodding my head and this is this is great. We're in a good place. I feel the same way. Although the last time I said to Ray, I'll just do whatever you want. Just happy to help out, and he handed me a broom. So uh, I'm not gonna. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got a plunger. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I, I, I'm I'm hoping that I get to participate on a panel. Uh, I I really enjoy hosting the facts and flukes or whatever we call it at Saturday mornings. It's so much fun. Right. It it's so much fun to interact with all of those great experts. And as you said, Todd, so many new young faces, bright young minds entering this field. It's it's really cheering to see for guys who've been around it for as long as we have. I'm getting on to 30 years now in fantasy baseball in one form or another. So uh, it's good to see that the game is in good hands, as the saying goes. Uh, guys, thanks very much for helping us out. Uh, Todd, tell our listeners where they can keep up with you. Well, unfortunately, now that we're past the All-Star break, not as many places as they could before. Um, but SiriusXM, MLB Network Radio. Still doing the hour show on Saturdays, uh, usually 7 p.m., sometimes early, depending upon what the, what the game uh, they're broadcasting. 
but still doing Rotowire podcasts, work for Rotowire, work for ESPN, and work on my own site, Masters Ball. But uh, yeah, it's uh, can't 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 pimp the uh, fantasy radio stuff. Ray, anymore. where can people keep up with your work? Yeah, a little of the same problem as Todd. Uh, fewer places than usual. I've been more deep into the management and back end of the site and less uh, writing this year. But uh, you can catch me when I do write on Twitter at RayHQ and uh, obviously all of the First Pitch Arizona planning we were just talking about. So uh, you can catch me in person in Phoenix come first And I'm Patrick summer. Davitt. I write for BaseballHQ.com. I hang around in those Baseball HQ forums, a ton of great wisdom there. And of course, I host the Baseball HQ radio podcast every Friday. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Monday, July the 10th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 25 of the 2023 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guests for this special All-Star Break Roundtable Edition, Todd Zola from Masters Ball ESPN and Rotowire and a bunch of podcasts, and Ray Murphy from BaseballHQ.com. They're both friends of the podcast that put in a lot of hours on this show, and I'm really grateful to talk with them because it's always a treat to talk baseball with Todd and Ray. I'm Patrick Davitt, the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, at least until I find a new place to go, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to Apple Podcasts, Google Pods, Pocket Cast, Spotify, wherever you catch your pods, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It helps us find new listeners, and new listeners help us keep the podcast going. If your pod getter of choice doesn't find Baseball HQ Radio, let us know about that or anything else on your mind by emailing bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again on Friday with Greg Jewett from the Reliever Recon website, the lineup's outlook column at Baseball HQ, and a closer reporter for The Athletic. Then in the weeks coming, we have Rob McCabe, Jason Collette. It's going to be a great second half of the season. That's Greg Jewett on next Friday's full edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. We'll talk with you again on Friday. Thanks again for listening. And for now, so long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.